our church. As you see, to grab those Bibles and let's open up to First uh, John chapter five. As you're finding your place, I kind of start off this morning by asking a couple of questions, if I could. Uh, first of all, let me ask you: What is it that you know for sure? What is it in your life that you know that you know that you know is absolutely one hundred percent true? Think about that, and then think about in 1789, it was Benjamin Franklin that wrote the words that uh, he said, nothing is certain but what? Who remembers? Who was there? Just kidding. <laughs> nothing is certain but death and taxes. Now, of course, that we know that there are more things in this life that are certain beyond just death and taxes. As children of God... We are not afraid to say with confidence and assurance that we know, that we know. In fact, the word know in John's letter is found 39 times. Eight different times he uses the word know in the final chapter. See, our life is to be built upon divine certainties that are found in and through Jesus Christ. The world may accuse us of being proud or dogmatic, but that does not keep us from declaring, I know. I know the Father's love. I know of His great grace. I know of His mercy and of His forgiveness. In these closing verses of chapter 5, we're going to come across five Christian certainties on which that we can build our lives upon. This morning, we're just going to look at the first one, The first one is found in verses 6 through 10. And the first certainty that we're going to discover today is the certainty that Jesus is the Son of God. A person who trusts in Jesus is born of God. And because they're born of God, they're able to overcome the world. Those are some of the truths that that we have already been unpacking. And so to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God is foundational and most basic of, of the Christian life. And in fact, the way of salvation is not found in and through the recitation of a sinner's prayer because the sinner's prayer is not found in Scripture at all. The way of salvation is found through repent and believe. Believe in what? Believe in Jesus Christ the Son of God. The question becomes, but how do we know that Jesus is the Son of God? After all, some of his contemporaries in Matthew chapter 27, uh, they referred to him as a liar and a deceiver. Others suggested that he was a religious fanatic or a madman. The people to whom John was writing, they were exposed to many false teachers in their time. Many Gnostic teachers that were trying to lead them astray. One person that was extremely popular at this time uh, was a man by the name of Serenthus. Serenthus was a Gnostic teacher who lived in Asia Minor around 100 AD. Or, so he's in the region and of the time that John pins this letter. As a Gnostic teacher and an influencer among the people, he had some messed up beliefs. He, he believed and he taught that the world was created by a power that was separated from and ignorant of the one true God. 
He believed and he taught that Jesus Christ was was actually the son of Joseph and Mary, not the son of God. In fact, his teaching declared that Jesus was just a man, and then at his baptism, the Christ Spirit filled the man Jesus and then remained with Jesus until Jesus was on the cross to which the Christ Spirit departed from Jesus, leaving Jesus to die just as a human being. This was the teaching of that time, and don't be fooled. This is the teaching that is happening today, too. That totally denies the deity of our Lord. See, if Jesus were only a man, if Jesus died only as a man, then he could not have taken upon himself the sins of the world. And Christianity would be an empty religion because only an act of God can take away the punishment that our sins deserve. And so John's letter is, is in part an attempt to try to refute some of this false teaching. And in doing so, in our text this morning, John is going to give three infallible witnesses that prove that Jesus is the Son of God. So in, in 1 John chapter 5, beginning of verse number 6, he says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only the water, but with the blood. And with the blood, I'm sorry, not with water only, but with water and with blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. Look back at verse number 6. Verse number 6 begins, and it says that this is the one who came by water and blood. To say that Jesus came by water and by blood was to say that Jesus came by his baptism and by his death. Now, it may seem strange to, to state the mission of Jesus in such a way but you got to remember what, what, what John has been talking about. Look back at verse number 5. Because in verse number 5, he says, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is, and underline that, that Jesus is the Son of God. And so here in verse number 6, John is declaring that beyond any question, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by the water, or at his baptism, and by the blood, or at the cross. And so both the water and the blood declare Jesus to be the Son of God, which is the same as both at his baptism and at the cross, Jesus is declared and revealed to be the Son of God. And both of those events are extremely important. So let's look at them. Let's look at the first witness. The first witness to testify that Jesus is the Son of God is the witness of the water, or his baptism. The baptism of Jesus is the great witness to his identity. It also helps to launch his mission upon the earth. 
When Jesus was baptized, two things that were unique and distinct occurred at his baptism. Uh, First of all, uh, you have the Spirit of God that came upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Now, remember that John the Baptist was to be the forerunner to the Messiah. And in order to point people to the Messiah, John had to know who that Messiah was. He had to know their identity with full assurance, with all confidence, so that he could point people in the right direction. The last thing that he needed to do would be to misidentify the Messiah and lead people astray. So John had to have absolute certainty who the Messiah was. Therefore, because of that, God told John that he would give him a sign. And the sign was going to be the sign of a dove. And God would cause the Spirit of God uh, to come upon his son in the form of a dove. And then, so John the Baptist, I, I would just imagine that every time he baptized someone, there must have been this anticipation and this wondering, is this the one? Is this sin? Because how was he going to know? He wasn't going to know until in his baptizing of someone for the Spirit of God to descend upon that individual and to remain on them. And John declares, I don't know who it is. So he's anticipating, he's waiting, he's being faithful. And so by the sign of the dove, John would know who the Messiah was. And so in John chapter 1, we see these words. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 32. It says, John testified saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and remained on him. Then he says, I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Notice how emphatic John is. He states the the glorious truth as forcefully as clearly as concisely as he possibly can he says i myself have seen and testify that this is the son of god that jesus is the son of god and so uh, the spirit of god comes upon jesus in the form of a dove and then the second thing that's unique about jesus's baptism is that the voice of god proclaims and declares that this is his son. All the gospel writers talk about this. Uh, Look at what Matthew has to say in uh, Matthew chapter 3. He says, And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Mark testifies that God's voice called Jesus his son in Mark chapter 1. And it says, And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved son, In you, I am well pleased. Luke testifies that God's voice calls out from heaven, declaring Jesus to be his son. In Luke chapter 3, it says, And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. At his baptism, the voice of God cries out and declares that Jesus Christ is, is his son this was the the father's personal testimony it is the 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 voice of god giving verification and validation that jesus is his son 
And so the first witness that we have is the, the witness of the water, or the witness of baptism. The second witness that we have is the witness of the blood or, or, or the witness at, at the cross. The blood of Jesus, his death upon the cross, declares and reveals him to be the Son of God. It is by his death that our sins have been forgiven. Jesus bore our sins upon the cross. He took the judgment and the punishment that we deserve. He suffered on our behalf. And that's what he was doing upon the cross. And this is the glorious gospel truth. Is that through the death of Jesus, we are now able to stand before God as being credited with his righteousness and his perfection. A divine exchange of great proportion occurs as a result of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus took our sin. In him was no sin. So Jesus took all our sin at the cross. He received the punishment that we deserve at the cross. And then if we'll put our faith in him, then the great exchange is he takes our sin, he takes our punishment, and then we are credited with his righteousness and we receive his perfection. That is why it's only in and through him that we can stand before a holy and righteous God. So not not only did, did Jesus was he revealed to be the Son of God at his baptism, uh, the, the work that he accomplished on the cross also give testimony to his identity. Only the Son of God could die on the behalf of mankind. Only the Son of God could, could rightfully and fully atone for our sins. You ever wonder why? Why is it that the only God's Son could accomplish this? Well, the answer is, Because God is perfect. God's perfect. Because he is perfectly holy and righteous, he can only accept that perfection in return. And so the reason why Jesus had to come to this earth and dwell among us was so that he could come and that he could live a sinless life. That, that by living a perfectly sinless life, he could then offer himself up as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And God would accept his sacrifice because it was the sacrifice that came from the perfect man. And so the blood of Jesus, or his death upon the cross, declares him to be the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. An interesting account that occurs as as the time drew near for Jesus to die. Because God, again, speaks audibly from heaven. And John records this in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, from verse 27 through 30, it says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. So the voice of God declares, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. In verse 29, so the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others uh, were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. 
It's the benefit of the people that the voice of God cries out. And so this is only one of, of three times that the voice of God cries out from heaven during the ministry of Christ upon the earth. The voice of God cries out at his baptism. Uh, it cries out at his transfiguration. Do you remember that story? That Jesus is, is on the mountain. He's there with Peter, uh, James, and John. Uh, Mark chapter 9 tells us that while he was there, that he had this transfiguration. That just simply means a change of form. Which means that in that moment, some of his divine glory was being revealed to Peter, James, and John. And in that occasion, the voice of God cries out from their midst, says, this is my son, listen to him. And here we see the voice of God crying out again. And as if that's not enough to give us full uh, confidence that Jesus is the son of God, God gives further evidence of the identity of our Lord by the miracles that happened while he was on the cross. You have the miracle of the supernatural darkness, the earthquake, the temple, the veil being ripped from top to bottom, exposing the holy of holies. No wonder the centurion said at his crucifixion, no wonder he declared, truly, this was the Son of God. So just so we're clear, Jesus at no point abandoned His deity. Jesus, miraculously, was 100% God and 100% man. The hypostatic union that we believe and we recognize and we celebrate. Jesus wasn't just an ordinary dude who at his baptism was blessed by receiving the supernatural spirit only for that supernatural spirit to abandon him. That's not the way it works. And so when John writes about Jesus coming by water and by blood, John wasn't just arguing some obscure theological point. He's refuting the claims of false teaching in that time that were trying to say that Jesus wasn't fully God. So John understood that ideas have consequences. And and, and wrong ideas will eventually wreak havoc into the lives of those that believe those wrong ideas. And so John's trying to bring clarity over the identity of our Lord. And, And so you have the first witness, the witness of the water. You have the second witness, the witness of the blood. And then you have a third witness, and that is the the witness of the Spirit. The Spirit was given to bear witness uh, to Jesus Christ. Listen to John chapter 15, uh, verse number 26. He says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And then in chapter 16, uh, John says, He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. See, we can trust the Spirit's witness, because the Spirit is truth. Back to 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 again. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. 
So we were not present at the baptism of our Lord. None of us were there when they crucified him. But the Holy Spirit was most certainly there. The Holy Spirit is the only person active in the world today that was both present at his baptism and the cross. And so the Spirit of God is truth. He bears witness because he is truth, which means he can do nothing else but to declare what is true. And the truth is, Jesus Christ is the Son of God who was sent into this world so that mankind might receive salvation. But, but how does the Spirit go about uh, bearing witness to the world? How does the Spirit go about testifying of those truths? Well, Scripture tells us in several ways. And I'll go through these real quickly with you. The Holy Spirit bears witness by convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the Holy Spirit bears witness to the conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. says, I, but I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Then he explains it concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world has been judged. So the Holy Spirit bears witness by convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Number two, the Holy Spirit bears witness by giving the believers the assurance and the guarantee of their salvation. So it gives us assurance and the guarantee of salvation. Ephesians chapter 1 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Not only that, the Holy Spirit bears witness by assuring children of God that they belong to him, that they are his children. Romans chapter 8, verse number 16 says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit bears witness by teaching the believer about the word of God. John chapter 14 says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. But there's more. I mean, the, the Holy Spirit bears witness by living within the believer, by, by making our bodies the very temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body. If you're a child of God, then you belong to the Father, which means we're to live our lives in full submission and surrender to that truth. It's not our lives, it's not our bodies, it's his life, it's his body to work in and through our lives. The Holy Spirit bears witness 
by giving believers the power to proclaim the gospel. I mean, why are we not tapping into this one more often? Acts chapter 1, verse number 8 says, but you will receive power to sit in church week after week and never do anything with your faith. Oh no, that's the today's standard version. No, listen to what it says. It says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. The Holy Spirit bears witness by giving us the power to carry out his mission and his ministry upon this world. And then another one, the Holy Spirit bears witness by leading and guiding our lives. John 16, verse number 13 says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. The witness of the Holy Spirit is our inner confidence that we belong to Christ. It's not a confidence that we can work up on our own, but it's a confidence that is given to us through the grace of God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse number 15, and he says, For you have not received the spirit of slavery, leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. These three witnesses, the water, the blood, and the Spirit, they all agree in their testimony. The water and the blood testify that Jesus came to us, and the Spirit testifies that he came for us. The first provides historical proof. The latter provides us with personal verification. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now go back to 1 John 5. Look at verse 8. It says that the Spirit and the water and the blood and, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. No, he's already spoken. He's already declared. He's already revealed the truth. Now, the law requires two or three witnesses uh, to give corroborating testimony in order for something to be verified as true. The law given to us back in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse number 6 says, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So, so one witness, one testimony isn't enough. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse number 15, it says that a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. Then it says, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And so according to Jewish law, the testimony of one person is not enough. It's insufficient. Truth or validity had to be established by two or three witnesses. And so since people can believe human testimony 
when verified by two or three witnesses, then John explains that surely they can believe the testimony that comes from God. The Father testified at His baptism and at the cross, and the Spirit testifies within the believer. And so the Spirit, the water, and the blood, they all settled the matter. Jesus is the Son of God. And we receive the witness of men, so why do we reject the witness of God Himself? And if we can trust one another, then surely we can trust God. In fact, not to trust him with the truths that he declares is to call him a liar. And back in verse 10, it says, the one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. John has a, a shocking assessment of those who refuse to believe the testimony of God, for those who refuse to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John is saying, you, in essence, you're, you're straight up calling God a liar. Now, such a statement may seem harsh. Maybe few people would bear, dare to be so bold in making such a declaration. Yet whenever you reject what the Word of God teach, teaches us, then that's exactly what we're doing. We're refusing to believe His testimony. And so to reject the truth is, is to attack the holy character of our divine Father. And so as chapter 5 comes to a close, and we're going to begin unpacking all of these truths that we can build our life upon, John starts with the first truth that Jesus is the Son of God because every other thing flows out of that reality. Jesus is God's Son. Now that's the truth. The question becomes, what are you going to do with that truth? Have you done anything with that truth? Have you accepted that truth for yourself? Has that truth caused you to repent of your sin and to put your faith and trust in Christ. If it has, hallelujah, praise the Father. May you know that you are a child of God and His Spirit dwells within you. But if you've refused to make a decision to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, or if you just outright rejected that reality for you, and the truth is, not only are you separated from God, you're actually declaring God to be a liar and there's no truth in Him. May you know the truth. May His Spirit reveal that truth and make it known to you. And as God's children, may we have a hunger and a desire in our lives to live in such a way that we honor and glorify Him in everything that we do, everything that we say. Our world is in a mess right now. So much pain, bitterness, hostility, hatred, venom. As children of God, we know the answer. The only solution, the true solution, the true hope for our nation and for this world is not going to be found in a political agenda. 
the true hope is found in and through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. As the recipients of God's grace, his love, and his mercy, that should compel us to be out there sharing the testimony of our Lord with other people. May we never get tired of talking about the love of God. May we never grow weary of sharing our faith and the testimony of the Father with other people. May we constantly be eager and anxious to share the gospel with others. And may the Lord strengthen and sustain us as we seek to live a life of faithful obedience unto him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the journey that we are on as a church. Thank you through the study through 1 John the conviction that comes each and every week to truly look at our lives and see what we're doing well and what we're doing poor in. And Father, in this moment, we know that there are decisions that ought to be made for your name and for your honor and for your glory. Father, I pray that the Spirit would bring great conviction into all of our lives, Father. Help us to confess and to repent from our sins. Help us to walk in faithful obedience to what you've called us to do. God, we know that you have joined us here for a purpose. Not by accident or by chance that any of us are here. You have divinely brought us all together because each and every one of us has been blessed with the spiritual giftedness that when they're all used in conjunction to one another, will make a strong and very beautiful church within our community. So God, help us to understand that. Help us to embrace that. Help each and every one of us to do our part for your kingdom and for your glory. God, we thank you for this day. Prayers that you are pleased by what you see in us. God, give us the strength to continue to live a life of faithful obedience for you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.